Probably. Yeah, there we go. So we'll, we'll try not to talk too loud. Um, so I, I appreciate, appreciate you guys having me this morning. Uh, this is awesome. Very intimate. I like it. I like it. And so we, I, I, was, um, I was talking to Denny, and he was asking me so we, we didn't cross over, you know, uh, topics. So I was thinking about what I want to speak on uh, just very briefly this morning uh, because uh, I understand Tennessee is playing at noon. <laughs> And I will be in front of the TV also, um, so 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 I don't want to keep you guys uh, too too long. Um, we will do two lessons, and um, and we'll just pray that God will be glorified in them. But in Acts chapter two, if you guys want to want to want to be looking there, what I want to talk about first, because as I as I as I was considering, you know, fellowship and and the aspect of it, and there there with two lessons, obviously we won't be able to exhaust every avenue of fellowship that we could, um, but I wanted to address uh, two of what I consider to be main points about fellowship. First, I wanted to talk about just kind of the principle of fellowship, uh, first and foremost, but because, because until we understand the principle of fellowship, we won't be able to truly um, engage fellowship in other areas. So we, we want to understand the foundation of fellowship, and when we consider Acts chapter 2, this is really where, where we understand the conception of fellowship. Now, of course, the idea of fellowship, you know, in the Old Testament, obviously, is going to run through, through the Old Testament when we, when we define fellowship. But when we're talking about the church and New Testament Christianity and, and fellowship, then really Acts chapter 2 is going to be the conception of fellowship because in Acts chapter 2 is where the church of Christ comes into existence on earth. Now, mind you, the church has been in existence for eternity. Ephesians chapter 3, 9 through 11, Paul said, and make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, um, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to his eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God's purpose is eternal, and that purpose is housed in Christ eternally, the church is the, the instrument by which that purpose is made known to the world. And so God didn't leave it up to the world. He left it up to the church to educate the world about the eternal purpose of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's salvation. God's eternal purpose it, the book of Ephesians is what we would call a twin epistle. It's the twin epistle to Colossians. Ephesians is, is the church of the Christ, and then Colossians is the Christ of the church. So Ephesians would be the body, Colossians would be the head. And so when you consider that Paul wrote both of these, right, prison epistles, then uh, you, you would understand that he would, he would, um, they, they, they almost read the same when you look at the chapters. They almost line up their 20 epistles. And so Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, like this was, this was God's purpose in due time. He would bring it to pass. He would bring all things together in one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 16, he would make Jew and Gentile one in the same body. And then in Ephesians 3, 4, he says, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery. And then verse 9 through 11, he tells us what that mystery is the eternal purpose of Jesus Christ. So when we consider fellowship, the church had been in the mind of God for eternity. It, the church is as old as God is because of the idea of the church, but it comes into existence in Acts chapter two. 
But when we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 44, we find, recorded by Luke, that in verse 42, that the church continued steadfastly in the <coughs> apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. Obviously, you want to note that word, right? In fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They were in fellowship continually. But why were they able to be steadfast? That's a great question. Why were they able to be steadfast in the apostle doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers? Because in verse 44, the Bible says they had all things common. Fellowship and things common are married. You can't divorce them. You can't have things uncommon and then have fellowship. Now, we understand that principle. We should understand that principle. How many Christians have I had to explain to why we don't fellowship with denominations, right? I've had to explain that to Christians. There's nothing common. We don't share anything in common. That's why we don't fellowship with denominations. Like, we, we don't have things common. The reason why they were able to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine is because they had all things common. The reason they were able to fellowship is because they had all things common. The reason they were able to break bread and pray for one another is because they had all things common. Friends, I can promise you, they didn't do that with folk they didn't have stuff in common with. I can promise you that. The church didn't do that in the first century. Paul and the apostles would speak vehemently against that, and we'll, we'll look at some of those passages. But when you notice the word fellowship there, it's interesting. The word fellowship there is the word koinonia, all right? It's the Greek word koinonia. And you'll find that word 20 times in your New Testament. Four times is going to be communion. One time is going to be communicate. One time is going to be communication. One time is going to be contribution. One time is going to be distribution. Now, that's eight. That's eight out of the 20. For the other 12 times in your New Testament, overwhelmingly, is going to be the word fellowship. And it means participation, partnership, or social intercourse. All right? So that, that, that's, just, that's just socially engaging with people in intimate ways, right? That's what fellowship means in its, in its basic definition. But when we consider fellowship of the church and the principle of it, where there are no things common, there cannot be fellowship. So I want you to notice three points. I'm a three-point guy. I love three points. That's just what I do. I'm a three-point guy. I want you to notice the purpose of fellowship first, right? So why do we fellowship? Why do we fellowship in the first place? Because we, we fellowship in other areas of life. Like we fellowship with family. We fellowship with people on the job. We fellowship extracurricular activities because we have that thing common with those people. But when we're talking about spiritual fellowship, all right, there has to be things common. So what's the purpose of fellowship? I'll have you know that, man, we live in a selfish society. But Christianity is the antithesis to that, right? Because you think about the first century Christianity and think about 21st century westernized American Christianity. <laughs> they look nothing alike. If there's anything I've learned in my tenure as a gospel preacher and as I've kind of, and I don't want to use the word evolve, let's use the word grow. As I've grown as a gospel preacher and I've really, you know, given attention to God's word, I, 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 see, I see things like, ah, man, you know, uh, you know, the first century church, are we, you know, are we really intently the first century church or are we really intently trying to be? And I, and I believe 
Um, I always believe the best of everybody. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. When I first meet you, I believe the best about you until you prove otherwise. I, I just kind of, that's my disposition, that's my nature. And I, I choose to believe that the Lord's Church in 21st century westernized America, our intent is to be the first century church. But we live in this society. It's, it's tough. It's tough. This society is very self-centered. It's self-centric. And, and if we're not careful, those kind of things will find their way into the church. You know, it, it's, it's tough. It's tough. We, we have more convenience and wealth and comfort than the first century church ever thought about having. Right? We have laws that protect our being able to worship without fear of persecution or molestation. Right? They didn't have that. You know, they didn't have the convenience of working and having social, uh, social, social nets and security nets and money and, and, and you know, they didn't, they, didn't ha- they didn't have, they didn't own land and, and, you know, very few of them maybe did, right? And we can look at a few of them uh, maybe in the next lesson to, 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 to distinguish maybe some of the few Christians that own property. But, it, but, but overwhelmingly in Rome in the first century, 70% of them were slaves. Or indentured servants. Yeah, 30% of Rome that were actually born free. You, were, you remember when Paul stood before Lysias when they drug him um, out of the temple in Acts chapter 21, and they took him before Lysias, and Lysias was a captain of the guard, and he was about to beat Paul because Lysias tried to investigate the situation to see why the Jews wanted to kill Paul, but he couldn't find out anything. Lysias said, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm more lost now than when I first took on this case. Right? I still don't know anything. So let's just beat Paul. Let's just beat this guy. Maybe he'll tell us something. Well, as, the, as the, 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 the soldier was about to scourge Paul, Paul said, hey, can I ask you a question? And so the soldier said, yeah, what, what's going on, man? He said, hey, is this how y'all treat Roman citizens? So the soldier said, you a Roman citizen? He said, yeah. So he ran to Lysias, got Lysias and said, uh, we're about to beat a Roman citizen. Lysias, fearful, went to Paul and said, are you a Roman? Paul said, yes, I was born free. Lysias said, with a great sum of money, I had to purchase my freedom. Right? Paul was born free, a Jew. So you can imagine Lysias, the captain of the guard, looking at this Jewish guy. Was like, you were born free? I had to pay a lot of money for my freedom. Right, Paul, Paul was born free. The first century is much different than the 21st century. We, we deal with selfishness and fellowship it, it combats selfishness. That's why fellowship is so important for the church. It combats us being so self-centric. You think about it. Think about, think about, think about the Sermon on the Mount with me, if you will. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I like to teach the Sermon on the Mount contextually. Now, obviously, there's remote applications we can make, right, to the Sermon on the Mount. We can apply it to us. But if we're talking contextually, it wasn't preached to us. It was preached to the Jews. Very simple. Notice the phrases in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said. And Jesus would quote the law of Moses. Well, no Gentile was, was, was observing the law of Moses. We know that these were Jews. Jesus would say, but I say unto you, showing that he was greater than the law of Moses. That's what he's trying to do to the Jews. So if you really want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, I call it a deprogramming, reprogramming sermon. It deprogrammed the Jews from the abuses of the law of Moses that the religious leaders had and was trying to reprogram them for the coming of the kingdom. That's what Jesus was trying to do. In Matthew 6, 33, well, that, 